We have been studying the church's devotion from Acts 2.42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. These early Believers devoted themselves to a life together within the church, but their life together within the church affected more than their personal growth as disciples. It had far-reaching effects that resulted in the making of new disciples. And we would be remiss if we stopped after three weeks of what they devoted themselves to and missed what the Lord was doing in their midst as a local church and what life in the early church was all about. John Stott said this about Acts 2.42. He said, Tens of thousands of sermons have been preached on Acts 2.42, which well illustrates the danger of isolating a text from its context. On its own, verse 42 presents a very lopsided picture of the church's life. Verse 47b needs to be added, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Those first Jerusalem Christians were not so preoccupied with learning, sharing, and worshiping that they forgot about witnessing. For the Holy Spirit is a missionary spirit who created a missionary church. Acts is governed by one dominant, overriding, and all-controlling motif. This motif is the expansion of the faith to missionary witness and the power of the Spirit. Restlessly, the Spirit drives the church to witness, and continually churches rise out of the witness. Luke describes what this witness looks like in verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It was the Lord that added to their number. Doubtless, he did it through the apostles' teaching and the witness of the church members who impressed those who were watching them. And yet it was the Lord who added to their number those who were being saved. And he did it daily. The early church's evangelism was not an occasional or sporadic activity. Just as their worship was daily, so was their witness, which was daily. Again, John Stott says this. He says, looking back over these marks of the first spirit-filled community, it is evident that they all concerned the church's relationships. First, they were related to the apostles in submission. They were eager to receive the apostles' instruction. A spirit-filled church is an apostolic church, a New Testament church anxious to believe and obey what Jesus and his apostles taught. Secondly, they were related to each other in love. They persevered in fellowship, supporting each other and caring for the needs of the poor. 
Thirdly, they, re, they were related to God in worship. They worshipped Him in the temple and in the home, in hospitality and in prayers with joy and reverence. Fourthly, they were related to the world in outreach. They were engaged in continuous evangelism. <laughs> evangelism is not a favorite topic of most It's not surprising that most of the evangelism books written begin with words like these, Max Stiles. Few topics are more discouraging when talked about vaguely and guilt-inducingly than evangelism. How many people have you led to Christ this week? Why didn't you share the gospel with that new guy at work? You can share the gospel if you do it like this. Michael Green, evangelism does not enjoy good press. It literally means the sharing of good news, but for most people there is little good news about it. It conjures up images of strident, perspiring preachers, of smooth-talking televangelists or strange characters at street corners urging the passerby to repent and meet their God. In a word, evangelism seems something no self-respecting person would want to be involved in. Joe Aldrich writes, uh-oh, What's that noise? It sounds like groaning. But I'm not gifted for evangelism, you say. I've tried to use the popular methods. They don't work for me. They just don't fit. If you're planning on telling me I can get to like them, don't bother. I've tried. Honestly, I have, and I've fallen flat on my face. What can you say about evangelism that will make a difference? I'm hoping I can make a difference today. I'm hoping that what I say and what I show you in Scripture will instill a new faith for the life God has graciously called you to. My proposition this morning is simply this. The witness of the early church was dependent upon their life together as the church. And this has not changed in 2,000 years. The witness of the early church was dependent upon their life together as the church. And this has not changed in 2,000 years. Their confidence in witnessing, their confidence in evangelism as a church was anchored in two realities. Those realities is that God seeks and saves the lost and a devoted church is a powerful witness. God seeks and saves the lost. And a devoted church, a church that lives life together, is a powerful witness. Our witness as a 21st century church is dependent upon the very same realities as was the church in Acts. So two points this morning. The first is... Confidence in God to seek and save the lost. (coughs) Confidence in God to seek and save the lost. That he is passionate and he is powerful to save. In his gospel, Luke, who we are studying in Acts, Luke pens story after story after story of Jesus fierce determination to fulfill his mission to seek and save the lost and how he powerfully does that. In Luke 15, Jesus tells us 
three very familiar stories about his passion to save the lost. The first is the story of the lost sheep. And the second is the story of the lost coin. And the third is the story of the lost son. And all these stories wonderfully describe something that was lost. But more importantly, they're stories about the one seeking what was lost. Jesus is telling these stories about himself, revealing how passionately he feels about saving and seeking after those who are lost. These stories, these three stories about the lost show that he is the true shepherd who looks for one lost sheep. He is like the woman who passionately seeks after the lost coin. He is like the father who has a loving heart towards a lost son. Jesus' passionate seeking of the lost is the central message of these stories. It's the message of the gospel, but critically important to the Savior in these stories are the items that are lost. To the ones who are without God, we are those who are lost. We are the lost sheep. We are the lost coin. We are the lost son. It is you and me that he sought passionately, wholeheartedly. I know what it is to lose things. I know what it is to lose things that I like. I have a history in our marriage of losing things. The fact that I still have my wedding ring after 36 years is close to my wife saying it's a miracle. Um, I have I, I lose checkbooks, I lose keys. I mean, there are times where I'm running around the house. Where are my keys? Where are my keys? And of course, Marilyn puts them on the key rack, which is the last place you should put my keys. I can't find them when they're on the key rack. How many times I've lost the checkbook? Where's the checkbook? And I realize that's old-fashioned. Most people don't write checks anymore. I still do. Uh, it's just lost things many years ago. David had a, a, a little Yahtzee, uh, electronic Yahtzee, and I got to just, I fell in love with it. And one day I was looking for it, and I couldn't find it. And it was like the world has come to an end. I'm all over the house lifting up cushions and looking under the bed. And where's my Yahtzee game? And looking, I mean, it was that kind of passion. And one time we lost our son. We were visiting friends in Cape Hatteras. He was three years old, four years old. And he disappeared. And they live along a river. And the intensity of a lost child where you don't know where they are. And I'm running along the riverbank looking for David and screaming out his name. And every room in the house and just not finding him. And the, the panic that I felt, that Marilyn felt at that moment. Thankfully, we did find him, obviously, upstairs in a little bathroom, sitting on the potty with a book, it, <laughs> having a great time. Dad and mom weren't. I understand the passion to find what is lost. And that passion can't come anywhere close to 
the Savior's heart to seek and to save the lost. And in Luke 19, there happens to be one very particular story dear to my heart about one who is lost. And it is a story that profoundly demonstrates how God personally and passionately seeks after one lost sheep. It is the story of Zacchaeus, chapter 19. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. And so he hurried and he came down and received him joyfully. And when they, speaking of the Pharisees, saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, if the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek to save the lost As we would read in Luke 17 and 18, Jesus is headed towards Jerusalem and his appointment with the cross, but there is another task at hand. Jericho is not quite directly on the way. And Jesus makes his way to Jericho, not by accident. He makes his way to Jericho. And as we discover in this story, he really does come specifically for Jericho. Zacchaeus. Why? Well, because he so loves the world. Why? Because he came to seek and save the lost. Why? Because he loves Zacchaeus. And although he remained undeterred in his desire and his appointment with the cross, he makes a detour to Jericho to meet with one particular man. It was not a random visit. It was not a by accident or coincidence. And neither was his coming for you and me. Neither was his seeking after you random or by accident. He is passionate. And when the Lord seeks after the lost, he doesn't seek after the lost in some general way. No, he he seeks personally and he seeks specifically And he came after Zacchaeus. And here we see God's sovereign call to Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, in verse 5, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. He knew Zacchaeus by name. He looked up into a tree as he's walking by with crowds around, and he knew the name of one small man standing in a tree. How amazing that the Creator of the universe knows you and me by name. And he comes seeking personally. And what drove his passion to seek is his love. And behind his passion to seek is desire to save. 
for those he calls will inherit eternal life. Jesus is not just passionate to seek the lost, but he also powerfully saves the lost. Acts 2.42, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. There is nothing that stands in the way of God's irresistible grace. He not only is passionate to seek and save the lost, he is powerful to seek and save the lost. Those he seeks, he saves. He powerfully overcomes the obstacle of our sinfulness. He powerfully breaks the slavery and bondage of sin. He can powerfully save because he has demonstrated his power through his sin-free incarnate life, through his not just death on the cross, but his resurrection. He has powerfully Come and he powerfully saves. That is the wonderful news of the gospel. And to his disciples, this story of Zacchaeus, this situation with Zacchaeus, is a bit of a surprise. Humanly speaking, Zacchaeus is not an easy one to be saved. He is a traitor, he is a thief, he is a tax collector, he has stolen money from his own people. He is one who is greedy and he's despised by those around him. And he's very, very wealthy. And yet, Jesus comes to Jericho seeking after Zacchaeus. And who would have thought that this man would have experienced today salvation has come to this house since he is also a son of Abraham. Who would have understood that he would have come to faith in Christ just because of what earlier Jesus had told his disciples. In verse 18 of chapter 18, a rich young ruler comes to Jesus and Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And the rich young ruler says, all these things I've kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said, well, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. And when the rich young ruler heard these things, he became very sad. For he was extremely rich. And Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. How perplexing because his disciples respond, those who heard it, then who can be saved? If a rich man can't get into heaven, who can? Jesus responds, what is impossible with men is possible with God. And then just a short time later, Jesus finds his way through Jericho. And he calls Zacchaeus. And he goes to Zacchaeus' home. And in just a few short moments, we see the camel going through the eye of a needle. We see a rich man Entering the kingdom of God. How powerful God is. Not just to 
seek the lost, but to save the lost. That which would have seemed impossible, that man who would have seemed impossible to enter the kingdom of heaven, he enters. J.C. Ryle says of this passage, it is in the reading of Zacchaeus' story that we see miraculously the camel passing through the eye of the needle. The truth of this story is this. No one is beyond God's saving power. Now, sadly, because of my experience, there are times where I have wrongly thought, I can't imagine that person ever coming to Christ. As though their sinful heart and their sinful lifestyle is greater than the power of God. Leon Morris wrote in his commentary, No one is too bad to be saved or beyond the power of God's grace. Many years ago at one of our small group leaders conferences here in this area, I was at the conference with my wife and a friend came up, somebody I had known from high school. This girl came up and she looked at me and surprised that I was there, hadn't seen her probably in 20, 25 years. And she looked at me and she said, I want you to know you were in high school. You were the last person I ever thought could be saved. (laughs) That is your pastor. (laughs) But we must anchor our faith in this wonderful truth that his sovereignty is all-powerful in salvation. Sometimes our faith can be tested because we don't see God working and we don't see the evidence that something is happening in a person's life. As with Zacchaeus, he often works quietly in the heart of someone, even when we're not aware of what he's doing. Zacchaeus climbed a tree because he was curious to see who Jesus was. It might not have seemed that much was happening in Zacchaeus' heart if you were looking on the outside. Listen, in our lives and in the places we live and the neighborhoods we, we are in and the places we work and the, the stores we frequent, frequent, we never know who's climbing a tree to take a look at Jesus. Oftentimes, we're not aware of the little insignificant things God uses to draw an unbeliever to himself. But, excuse me, Jesus is working. Zacchaeus is born again and he comes to inherit eternal life. We can be confident in God that he is seeking and saving the lost. And that's where All witnessing, all evangelism is anchored. It is grounded in this inviolable truth that God is powerful to save. And he does. But secondly, we can also have confidence that our life together as a church is a powerful witness. We can have confidence that our life together as a church is a powerful witness. What made the early church so evangelistic as we see in Acts 2 is their life together. They were devoted to one another. 
They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to fellowship. They were devoted to the breaking of bread, hospitality, and prayer together. And the effect of that devotion as a church and having life together was awe came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day they attended the temple together and they met in their homes and they broke bread and they received their food with with just a thankfulness and a gratefulness. And they praised God and God gave them favor. And then he added to their number those who were being saved. Their devotion to teaching, their devotion to fellowship, their devotion to hospitality and prayer and eventually baptism and the Lord's Supper are what witnessed to the community around them. They were confident in their love for one another and their commitment to one another. They were confident that the way they lived together would be their most powerful witness and would be the open door to sharing their faith with others. John 13, 34 says this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. That was, that love was demonstrated in this devotion. And then John records, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love. For one another. And Jesus in his high priestly prayer in John 17, that they may all be one, just as the Father, you the Father are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. You know, when I talk about growing as disciples, when I talk about helping each other grow as disciples, I'm talking about doing that in community, in life together, in devotion to these things. A church gathered together as we see right here, right now. A church that lives together corporately, that that goes to Sunday meetings faithfully together, that are in care group together, that share hospitality together, that that experience accountability together, that have play dates together, that have picnics together, that just simply hangs out together. They're devoted to one another. That is the powerful witness to the world. Our making of new disciples through evangelism is to be the same way, not in this isolation of I'm going to stir my courage up to go door to door or go witnessing through a mall somewhere, hopefully that I won't get accosted. No, no, it is, it is a devotion of life together. It is evangelism in community. Not that we don't have personal conversations, not that we don't share our faith one-on-one, but our most effective witness is in our life together. 
And within this life of devotion as a church, we can be confident that evangelism is happening as we are living out this Christian journey and experiencing the ups and downs, the good and the bad. And people are watching. It is a confidence that our church family, our community bears the image of God together and shares the word of God together. Listen, I, I want you to know I have the greatest confidence that when I invite someone to Grace Church, and that I have done many times, they will experience you. That is what I want them to experience. I want them to experience you. They will experience the gospel because you are so warm and loving and caring and hospitable and because you are so devoted to our life together. As new folks have been added to Grace Church, our church, the most consistent comment I get about that that from that person is this, I just feel so loved when I come on Sunday mornings. I feel so cared for. That is devotion to a life together that creates a witnessing community. We can be confident in that. Listen, at Grace Church, we are not trying to adorn the gospel with laser lights and loud music and candles and motivational messages. We are trying to adorn the gospel by sitting here together under the teaching of Scripture, by sharing our lives together in care group, by sharing our our lives together in the Lord's Supper like we just did this morning and remembering His death, by meeting together to celebrate His resurrection, that He is still alive as we will next week, by proclaiming He is alive and adorning the gospel together even at a funeral of someone we know who is a Christian because we express an enduring hope in eternal life. Acts 2.42-47, they were sharing their lives together and people watched. There is no doubt that they spoke to others about what happened to them. They witnessed with their lives and their words and many were added to the church. Please, I know how discouraging evangelism can be. I know the guilt that rides upon us when we don't feel as though we have been sharing enough. But listen, you are witnessing. You are witnessing in your life together. Now, we don't stop there. We do tell the gospel. How can someone know unless they hear? We do invade the lives of others with our life and our personal lives together. And we do share the gospel. But our most powerful witness is the life that we share together here at Grace Church as we are devoted to one another, as we're devoted to the Lord and his teaching. Don't lose heart. Don't lose heart when your efforts seem to make no progress with the neighbor that you've been talking to for five years, ten years. 
Don't dismiss your conversations with your neighbors, your kindness to those around you, your efforts to adorn the gospel. It means something. Don't dismiss serving your neighbors because it doesn't seem to have worked. It does mean something. Most importantly, don't dismiss inviting others into our church. They're going to see something counter-cultural. And that's good. It's why we don't do laser lights and candles and motivational messages. Because we want them to experience the culture of Christ. Your devoted life to this church is not a deterrent to evangelism, but the doorway to evangelism. Your efforts mean something. And you never know when someone is climbing a tree to take a look at Jesus. Don't don't grow discouraged about your efforts. I love what Spurgeon says. He said, I have often been surprised at the mercy of God to myself. Poor sermons of mine and how I identify that I could cry over when I get home, which I have done, have led to have led scores to the cross and ordinary conversations, mere chance sentences as men call them, have nevertheless been as winged arrows from God and have pierced men's hearts and laid them wounded at Jesus' feet. I have often lifted up my hands in astonishment and said, how can God bless such feeble instrumentality? But he does. It's a, it's a rough world that we live in. It's a rough world out there. But people are not our enemies. They are image bearers as well who, like us, have twisted the image of God into horrible shapes. But who, when invited into a church devoted to teaching and fellowship, hospitality and prayer and life together, will enter a place where the gospel is adorned and where God is passionately and powerfully saving. For us, Let's always be mindful of what people can become. New creations in Christ, renewed and restored by the transforming love, grace, and power of God. Let's continue to be the devoted church that we have been these past few years as we go forward. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the powerful work you have done in our church, for uniting us together, for knitting us together. Lord, thank you for the witness our church community is, how grateful we are. And Lord, we ask, we plead, we appeal to you that you would use the witness of our church to see many come to faith in Christ. 
Do it in our Sunday meetings. Do it in our care groups. Do it in our hospitality times. Do it in our picnics. Do it in our mornings at the park. Do it when we gather together. Lord, may the world see the gospel adorned in the lives of our church. For your glory, we ask that you would do this, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.